Welcome to the Redefining Freedom podcast. This is your host, Sophia Nelson, and happy Black History Month here in the United States. It's the month where we honor the achievements of Black Americans in all disciplines of life and the sciences, the arts, and politics, and the public square, civic engagement, in academia, in philanthropy, in everything you can think of, Black Americans have contributed to American history from the beginning of this republic till now. I know that there has been a great and disturbing movement over the last number of years to squash history, to not teach accurate and full American history, to pick the parts we like and to discard the parts that embarrass us that are that aren't pleasant or that are maybe ugly and we don't like to see them in our time. That's not what history is for. History is our great schoolmaster. It teaches us what not to do again. We should learn the lessons of those things that we didn't get right, of those things that we didn't do fairly, of those things that we pushed aside and didn't address when we had the opportunity. I have a great guest with me today, Dr. Cassandra Newby-Alexander. She is the Endowed Professor of Virginia Black History and Culture at Norfolk State University. She is an author of many books, and she is the preeminent expert, or one of them in this state, in Virginia, on issues of race, culture, history, and how they all intersect. And we have a full conversation both on the video podcast and on this podcast here about history, Black history, American history, systemic racism, restorative justice, reparations, and how do we go forward in a time where we are so bitterly divided now along issues of race, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how do we move forward a more perfect union? Uh, This conversation was spurred by the controversy in Newport News, Virginia, and my former university, Christopher Newport University, a series that was done exposing the displacement of black communities in the Newport News area over the number of decades and years where black families were displaced as the university grew and acquired more lands and more space and built more buildings and became more prosperous, and the dismal numbers of black faculty and black students There is a restorative justice commission that has been set up and we will talk about that and what exactly restorative justice means and what it does not mean and how we deal with systemic racism that yes, Nikki Haley really does exist today in 2024 in the United States of America. Let's talk about it. Welcome, everybody, to our newest podcast here at the start of Black History Month. This is your host, Sophia Nelson, and we have a good podcast for you today as we launch into uh, what America celebrates every year in February, which is Black History Month. And I know that many of you uh, who are my listeners around the globe and uh, who may not understand what the concept of Black History is Thank you for tuning in and understanding that Black history is American history. They are the same. They are not different. They should be honored the same because Black Americans have contributed from the very beginning and before America was a country in 1776. Uh, In 1619, when the first slaves arrived here, Black people have been contributing to the greatness of America. So I'm always delighted uh, in February to have these important conversations with guests. And my guest today is is special indeed. Dr. Cassandra Newby-Alexander is the Endowed Professor of Virginia Black History and Culture at Norfolk State University. She is a, a past emeritus director of the Joseph Jenkins Roberts Center for the Study of the African Diaspora and she's a former dean of the College of Liberal Arts at Norfolk State in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Dr. Newby, welcome, and uh, thank you for coming back with me on the audio version. We did a video version of the podcast, and uh, I'm delighted to have you back. Let's get right to it. We talked a lot on the video version of the podcast about restorative justice in the context of what we see a lot in the media over the last couple years, which is the call for reparations. 
California is looking at that in a big way right now. Uh, we are looking at how a lot of our public universities in the South, some private ones, uh, were set up and, and given lands that had belonged to the Black community before um, communities that had been there since post-Reconstruction. Uh, and those uh, displacement of those communities and the way that those public universities and private universities now have big endowments and they've gained a lot of wealth and buildings and lands and, and, and chairs and all these different things at the expense of the black community. And so we talked about that. What I want to talk about with you now on the audio podcast is let's get to what's really happening in the country right now in this context, which is there is an open assault on DEI, open assault. Uh, it started with Dr. Claudine Gay's um, takedown at Harvard. But it was going on before that with the Supreme Court and affirmative action and doing away with affirmative action and admissions. And so I'd like you to kind of set the table for us. Why all of a sudden are we seeing this very open, hostile attack on diversity, equity and inclusion and the pushback on uh, even raising the issue of race? You see it with presidential candidate Nikki Haley and others saying America's not a racist country. Slavery wasn't really about the slaves. I'm sorry, the Civil War wasn't about slaves. It was really about freedom. Uh, what do you make of all this? It is part of a cycle that we see repeated countless times in American history and society. Uh, think about the American Revolution, when it seemed as if there was a good possibility that slavery would end. And then as soon as we went from having registered 10,000 free blacks in 1790 and then in 1800, there were 100,000 free blacks, all of a sudden white America became incredibly frightened. And you saw this plethora of, of laws passed in every single state every single city and county trying to stop the freedoms of, of all African-Americans, you would also begin to see this, this movement away from, from uh, ending slavery to a movement justifying slavery and demonizing black people as somehow in inhuman. So this this tact that not tactic, but this response by America, by white America in particular, uh, and this this is not to say that all white Americans uh, behave this way. This is very much not the case. But we do see a large proportion. It once was a majority of whites. Now it's a very loud, significant minority of whites who still are reacting the same way. Every time there's a movement, a real movement forward, or at least the promise of a movement forward, we see this racist backlash. And of course, um, you know, with all of the DEI programs that were created, there's always this argument. And I think about the affirmative action attacks that happened even in beginning in the late 1970s, and especially in the 1980s, this idea that somehow Black people who are undeserving are getting something from the pockets of white people. So if black people get anything, it's to our detriment, meaning white people feel that it is to their detriment, that something is being taken from them. And of course, the opposite is actually true. Uh, but that, but this, this reaction that we see now um, I could actually see that about to happen 30 years ago. Interesting you say that. You know, I often tell my students, and I had a chance to speak with uh, a good number of our HBCU students here in the Commonwealth uh, last weekend at the Gloucester Institute down at Holly Knoll. And uh, I was talking to them, I said, you know, we're in the second reconstruction or post-reconstruction, if you will. And they kind of looked at me puzzled, like, you know, what does she mean? And you and I are on the same page. What I mean by that is, historically speaking, and for those of you who are not people of color who are listening, stick with me. 
The majority <laughs> of people that listen to my podcast, interestingly, is male. It's 55, 45. And I have a lot of white male center right conservatives that listen to me because of my views on economics and military, et cetera, et cetera, where I tend to be more conservative, but I'm very much more socially liberal as I would be as a woman of color. And I want you to stick with us because we're not talking at you. We're trying to educate you about what I think is really important if we're going to bridge the divide in this country and if we're going to have meaningful dialogue and find a way forward, we've got to tell the truth. And I think that what you've said is right in that um, the second post-Reconstruction, as I like to call it, is we had a Black president and a Black first lady for eight years. And what immediately followed what many people in my parents' generation who are baby boomers and my grandparents who are the greatest generation never thought they'd see a Black president in their lifetime. I was suspect as a Gen Xer if I would as well, but thank God I've lived to see it. But this backlash, here comes Donald Trump down the escalator at Trump Tower with his wife, who I have nothing against, but she is an immigrant. And he speaks terribly of immigrants, speaks terribly about them as if they're not even human beings. And here he comes down the steps. And the first thing he does is what questions Barack Obama's legitimacy and his birth certificate, whether he was really qualified to be president of the United States because was he really born here? And that's how he kicks off his 2015 primary 2016 campaign. And you see this buy-in, not just from poor rural whites or MAGA, as they're called, or the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, but my neighbors who are upper middle class whites and others who are educated people who found themselves supporting Donald Trump. Talk a little bit about that, how Trump's birther, you know, conspiracy movement gave birth not only to his candidacy, but his presidency and what what you see happening and how those things are connected. You know, if you if you um if if your listeners go back and actually watch what Donald Trump did, um it it's a familiar tactic. He not only others people of color, but he says they're criminals, that they're bringing horrible criminal activity and behavior to a nation that somehow is uh, devoid of all of that. And in fact, um, you see these old statements coming out all the time saying, well, you know, when I was younger, we never had to lock our doors. Now we have to lock our doors, you know, because there are all these criminals around. Well, you know, when they're talking about they didn't have to lock their doors, they're really talking about when there were no black people in their neighborhoods because their neighborhoods were segregated. When uh, black people were, were not allowed by the federal government, not to mention the state and local, but the federal government put in funds for suburban communities. And if you use those funds, you could not allow a black person to purchase property in those areas. And so they're talking about these all white neighborhoods that now they have to be afraid of black people because they're now allowed to live in those neighborhoods. And see these old ideas, they, they have their roots in how our society has always framed black people. Um, it, you know, there was a lot of information, a lot of pushback from the Time magazine picture of O.J. Simpson. Uh, they darkened his complexion uh, for this picture when he was on trial for murdering his wife. And, you know, and we see these, if you go back historically, in fact, one of the best films that or documentaries that deals with this uh, was uh, is called Ethnic Notions. And I encourage people to watch that. Tim Reed and his wife, Daphne Reed, were involved in the creation of that film. It is, is perhaps one of the single best films that shows you systematically how these images of Blacks have been used not only to justify slavery, to justify segregation, 
isolation and to and exclusion, but to also justify the ongoing dehumanization of blacks. And so Trump played into that. Now, the Republican Party had been playing footsies with this type of racism before, but mm -hmm. Trump brought it out to the point that it wasn't under the guise of, of you know, euphemistic phrases and references. Right? Take the Tea Party in 2010. Oh, right? yeah. It was kind of the yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be like the founding fathers, the patriots, and we're gonna have a backlash to these policies of this black president. And then they nominate Mitt Romney in 2012, who's you know everybody's favorite moderate Republican, right? And yeah. Romney doesn't play that game, which is why he's leaving. He's persona non grata. But you know, if you go to your point, ever since the parties really changed identities. And they really did, probably when Barry Goldwater became the nominee, what, in 64? Yes. Kind of flipped from that, you know, racist Southern white Democrat party of Richard Russell and the good old boys that Lyndon Johnson had to wrangle during the civil rights era. And then you had a real personality change. The, the, the Republicans kind of got infiltrated by the Dixiecrats and it flipped. But to your point, to give people context, what you're talking about is that this goes way back. And while you're thinking of magazine covers, remember in 2008, the New Yorker has President Obama with a turban. He's then Senator yes. Obama. And a dashiki <laughs> on Michelle Obama with an afro and a machine gun on her back like Angela Davis. Yes. And they caricatured them. Well before he even got the nomination, because Hillary Clinton was clearly the favorite at this point, and they were already scaring people, Barack Hussein Obama, the Muslim. Yes. And his radical black wife from South Side of Chicago. <laughs> yes, that is definitely what was done. And of course, they're just going back to the same old tropes, and that is that blacks are dangerous to the safety and well-being of white America. And that is all that Trump has been doing. He's been saying that. How and why there are African-Americans, especially men, who somehow identify with that, um, that goes into a whole psychological dimension that we don't have time to get into in this discussion. But suffice it to say that that kind of psychological trauma of, of hating who you are, hating uh, the identity that, that society has placed on you is a part of, of, being the, of being a person who represents this othered group of people who are not welcomed in society, are forced to be there, and then after they've been there generationally, are told to go back to Africa, as if you left it voluntarily, as if you know what part. So what part of Africa am I supposed to go back to when I have probably about 15 different ethnicities running through my veins and the majority of those ethnicities if you if you look at the you know how much percentage is this and that is is northern europe and so exactly where am i supposed to go back to if if i am if if i'm african american and you're telling me that i have to go back because this is not where i belong Right. And so that idea has been put in motion time and time and time again. Yep. And that's how politicians win um, win uh, their candidacy because they're talking primarily to a white audience who's empowered, who has the voting rights and capability of casting their votes. You know, you said something, you said a number of things that were powerful. Both you and I are descendants of slaves, direct descendants, and we're yes. both women and I was joking about that as we were getting our lighting for the camera <laughs> you know, we've got a lot of white men in the family tree yes uh, that didn't belong there and injected themselves into the tree or that in the case of my great-great-grandparents literally ran off of a plantation they actually were in love with each other and grew up together and he had to leave because they regarded him as every bit as a 
you know, N-word as they did her once he declared his love for her and they ran off and went to Oklahoma. And then after the Civil War, they moved to California and had 13 children. But that yeah. is exception, not the rule. And you're right. When you tell us to go back, go back to where I remember President Trump was saying that to the women uh, that were in Congress, Ocasio-Cortez and the squad, <laughs> they all back to where they came from. Well, they're from Brooklyn. They're from Ellen. <laughs> you know, and, and so you're right. But, you know, it's funny. During the break, um, I got a text from a dear friend who is a young white woman. She's a teacher here in the Commonwealth. And she sent me an urgent text. And she said, I could be in some trouble in my... Uh, my school, because a white student asked me today, she teaches the young kids, like, let's say, third grade, fourth grade. He said, well, why do we have to have a Black History Month? Why don't we have White History Month? And her being, you know, pretty well versed in this and making sure that she knows what she's doing. She said, well, we learn most of history. Ninety nine percent of what you're taught is white history and not black history. And we dedicate a month so that we can focus in on the accomplishments of African-Americans in this country and how they've contributed to American history. And she said, you know, I'm probably going to get called in. I'm probably in some trouble. So what should I do? And I said, first of all, um, you gave a good answer. I, I'm not sure that a third grader processes that, but be clear that he heard that at home or was directed to ask that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't we have white history month? I hear a lot of that. That's not just coming from the kids folks. That's on my Twitter feed. It's on my Facebook, my Instagram. It's in the lexicon of members of Congress and others who are saying, well, you know, why do we have to have DEI? Why do we have to have affirmative action? Why are black people always complaining? Why can't you be grateful that you were here? Why don't we celebrate white history? If we had a white history month, what what do you say to people who say those type of things? What's what's the response to why we don't have a white history month? In this segment, we're going to ask and answer a controversial question. Why doesn't America celebrate white history month? You may think I'm joking with this, but you see it all the time on social media. You see it coming from politicians elected officials in the U.S. Congress, presidential candidates, serious people who ask the question. Of course, it's asked with disdain. It's asked with dismissal and anger as to why would we have to have a Black History Month in the year 2024? Why can't we all just be colorblind? Why can't we all just be equal? And well, how would you feel if we had a White History Month? We're going to talk about it. This is good. Stay tuned. Well, I, I actually remind them of how Black History Month got started. And it got started by a group of, of African-American scholars who saw that the way that the his, American historical narrative was written wrote them out. And so they wanted young people to know their history and to know what really happened. And so they started first with a week. It would be a kickoff week that would last for the rest of the year to talk about this theme and this history of African-Americans. And then it expanded by the 1970s to a month. And then the nation began to pay attention to this effort because it was taught when, when schools were segregated, it was taught in those uh, black segregated schools. Um, but when people wanna know why they don't have white history month, I asked them, why would you duplicate things when every uh, every history textbook, 99% of it is about white people? So why do you need to duplicate what already exists? And, and I just start showing them examples. 
how many of your white presidents, because a lot of textbooks are organized chronologically or thematically around presidents and around eras where there were wars and who were the commanders during those periods. And I said, these are all white men that you're seeing. Um, you know, and and really more specifically, most of our American narrative is white male elite history. And so what happened to the rest of the people? Um, what were the rest of the people doing? Were they just, you know, just sort of sitting there doing nothing, waiting on, you know, their Lord and master to come and tell them what to do? So, so let's expand the way that we're looking at this history. And there are many um historians as well as those in the fields of literature, art, music, and so forth, who expand our understanding of our past and our present by presenting their fields in a different way than the normal way of focusing only on what white elite men have done. And so when you start talking to people about that, because I find that people are not that well educated. They don't think about what they're learning and they have learned it. And, and, and it's because there's nothing they can identify with, nothing that resonates with them. And so when you talk about black history, that resonates with those especially who are African-American because they can see themselves, they can see their lives in that history. That's the beginning of learning about this bigger picture. And so I tell people, if you're afraid to drill down looking at one specific group and the experiences that they had, then you're not really ready for prime time. You're not really ready to learn about real American history. No, you're, you're right. And, and, and I think that to your point, um, this is a touchy subject. And again, I know that it, it gets blood boiling of folks because they are misinformed. They are ill-informed. And in many cases, particularly now, if you get on Facebook, if you get on YouTube, if you get on TikTok, if you get on X, Twitter, the misinformation bots is really scary. Like the stuff that you see being proliferated out there, particularly to young people who have no historical context, they were born well after, you know, they grew up with a black president. They don't see the discrimination. They don't understand it. And they say, well, wait a minute, Sophia, you're a lawyer or wait a minute, Cassandra, you're a PhD. I'm a poor white person. How are you telling me I have privilege or or my skin color helps me? What do you say to folks that say that? I say, let's look at the statistics. For example, the banks and the mortgage companies and how many of these groups have, have, have uh, looked at at these mortgage companies and the rate at which they approve whites versus blacks. Same socioeconomic profile, but the black person is 99% of the time rejected or maybe 80% of the time rejected for the loan. The white person is almost 100% accepted for the loan. So we see these, these ongoing disparities. We see um, these, uh, 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 people who are offering loans, but they're more like loan sharks and they're charging these huge interest rates, but they target certain communities and they use um, people in that, you know, who look like those in that community in their ads. Uh, a lot of these predatory for profit universities, you know, they, they have a very low graduation rate and a very, very high tuition rate. And they're always promising all these jobs, but they typically don't deliver. And they target African-American communities. They target Hispanic yeah, communities. See 80%, I know because I did a lot of work with Strayer University and others, you know, helping them with some things. And you're absolutely right. When you go to these commencements, I've spoken at several and they're, you know, you got 5,000 graduates, right? In any given city, you go to Charlotte, you go wherever and you, you see, and it's, it's, I was stunned and it was majority black. I had no idea. So it's to your point yeah. that they absolutely target 
African-American communities, whether that's for better or for worse, but your point is well taken. Um, let's switch over because I don't, I don't, I want us to use this time that we have. And again, you and I can go forever. Um, <laughs> we've talked a little bit about DEI and it being under attack. And we've talked a little bit about kind of this, what I call the second reconstruction and how we're not wanting to talk about history. You see black people being othered, uh, being dumbed down, you know, when we are accomplished, when we have paid our dues and trust me, as my grandmother used to say, baby, you got to be twice as good. She was right. Your grandma told you the same thing. Um, oh yes. It, we, we take 10 times the knots of anybody else. When we become that black lawyer, that black doctor, that black PhD, the black airline pilot, the black scientist, the black tech expert, whatever it is, it, it was painful to get there. And I want to switch into academia, which is our wheelhouse, and go back to this notion of restorative justice that we're hearing about reparations. And here in the Commonwealth, there's been a lot of media over the last few months, in particular the last month, around uh, my former school, Christopher Newport University, and the takings of lands of Black communities, Black families uh, that had been there forever to build the university, the wealth of the university, the prestige of the university. And yet the Black faculty numbers are dismal. The Black student body numbers are dismal. And this is allowed to continue at a public university, which gets Title IX funding and federal funding, state funding. Talk about why that is, number one, why is that allowed to continue? Why hasn't there been more pressure from the legislature, particularly in a place like Hampton Roads and Newport News? And and what is the road forward, uh, Professor, on how we deal with these systemic issues of racism in academia, in our public universities? You know, to, to, to just bring it back to politics for a moment, all of us saw a Republican presidential candidate, uh, former South Carolina governor Nikki Haley, get in a lot of trouble in a town hall when she was asked very directly about the cause of the Civil War and what she thought about it. And she sidestepped slavery of this as if it did not happen and wasn't an issue and tried to make it into a Tenth Amendment. Well, it's a state's rights issue and the state's not wanting the government to tell them what to do. And she caught a lot of heat for that. And I was glad that everybody jumped on her, really made her try to have to deal with that. But first address why you think Nikki Haley did that. And then secondly, to this issue of restorative justice and how do we fix lands being stolen, homes being ruined, communities being destroyed to build these public universities where we're not even being admitted and, and thriving as faculty or administrators. So um, Nikki Haley uh, was trying very hard to be the other candidate for the MAGA crowd. And people know who the MAGA crowd are. These are people who want to argue that uh, Confederate images are not racist, that they don't have any um, racial issues associated with them, um, that uh, the Civil War was a states' rights issue, and that's all, that slavery was very minor, that slavery was dying out, and that their, their family members who owned slaves, they lost everything, and blah, blah, blah. And these are all myths. All of them are myths. And I'm not saying that people didn't lose some things. Yeah, they're lies. But they're myths. If I can right. finish your thought, but I, uh, did, I <laughs> to correct the record here, a lot of people don't know that the federal government, the United States of America, after the civil not to the damn slaves, but to the slave owners. And oh, yeah. recompense them in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if you think about that in today's monies, you're talking millions. There was never 40 acres and a mule for us, but the slave yes. owners got reparations. So go Oh, yes. <laughs> exactly. And but you have to remake history if you are remaking your societies to still be an unequal society at the same time um, uh, claiming and proclaiming to the world that you are about liberty and freedom for all. And so you you have to you have to create this very bizarre world that 
um, you know, to live in that bizarre world, to believe those ideals, you have to suspend knowledge and real knowledge about history. And so going, going to the point of who she was appealing to, she was appealing to that group, to that group who believe that if they don't have money, it's because all their all of the money that should be going to them is un, unrightly going to these black people who are undeserving, who, who are uh, a drain on society, the welfare queens, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and it's also because the media reinforces those ideas. Uh, for example, here in Hampton Roads, for years, every shooting, every robbery, everything that was criminal, criminally related, that was within a two-mile radius of Norfolk State University, they would say, and this happened near Norfolk State University. Whereas rapes, murders, shootings, robberies that happen on, on Old Dominion University's campus were never reported wow. as happening on that campus. Instead, they would give a street number, but they would never say Old Dominion University. So they were reinforcing this idea that if it's a Black institution, that there's criminal activity going on there, whereas at this white institution, everything is wonderful. There's no criminal activity. You know, you can walk around freely and never be assaulted. And so the, these these ideas have played into society's minds and into those the poorest of the poor, who are often white people. These are the ones who need to believe that their condition is not the result of something that they did or didn't do, but rather the result of other people who are undeserving getting fair treatment. And they don't want to hear anything about slavery, even though they fantasize that somehow if they went back to the 1840s or 50s, that they would be on the on the uh, veranda of the plantation house, sipping mint juleps, not in the fields themselves working. You know, it's it's this very odd idea and belief um, that somehow they can be very poor, but at least they're not a black person because they're the worst kind of 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 animal out there and they don't want to be a part of that. And anything related to what society has done to African-Americans is not something that they want to talk about. And so she's trying to appeal to this crowd, which is already suspending any real historical knowledge and understanding. And she's appealing to them because there's that, that desperation, I believe, among the Republican leadership that they, 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 they know they went too far with Trump and they're trying to somehow find another candidate to bring these people who are on the Trump train back to the Republican party instead of being followers. Hi folks, this is host Sophia Nelson and we're going to pick up in this next segment continuing the discussion about restorative justice and what it means when your lands are taken, when your communities are destroyed, when there's redlining, when there is predatory lending and how it not just affects black wealth and ownership of land, but it affects generational wealth, it affects access, it affects community. And we're going to talk about what that looks like with Dr. Newby Alexander. Stay with us. Hey, folks, we're back. We had a little bit of a technical snap through there, but we're back with Dr. Newby Alexander. And uh, we were talking about this issue of restorative justice, reparations, big discussion ongoing in our country right now. And every place from California to the Carolinas to here in the Commonwealth of Virginia and the Deep South, all over on how to deal with 
the legacy of systemic racism that emanated from slavery in this country and Jim Crow. Uh, Dr. Alexander, you were in mid-sentence when we got disconnected and you were just talking about uh, kind of what has been the practice and, and what we've seen time and time again. And the question is, what do we do going forward? How do we fix this? What does restorative justice actually look like in these instances where we're having these blue ribbon commissions and we're going to study it and we're going to apologize and we're going to watch videos and what, what should it really look like? So it can be all of those things, but it cannot stop with all of those things. Um, the people who were harmed or the descendants of the people who were harmed need to be at the table from the beginning. And they need to be the ones leading the discussion as to what can be the remedy. Because restorative justice is not just satisfying the group who offended someone, but rather it's, it's looking at how that person was harmed and how that person was harmed over time. So if you're taking land, you're taking homes, what would that home have been worth today? And what kind of, of legacy, what kind of, of uh, settlement would be appropriate? Because, you know, one of the things about land that is true is land gains in value. It does not lose value. Nope. And, and, and you cannot pass down generationally the wealth coming from that land if you've been deprived of that land. And so bringing people to the table, first of all, who've been harmed is the first step. How do they see this reparative justice? But then looking at this bigger picture of what is the totality of the harm that was caused. And if you want to put a dollar figure on that, then bring in some economists to really talk about that. But don't just use the old formula of, is this land worth anything based on whether I want to purchase it if you, a black person, was living there? Because that's the old way. That's the old formula. Is this a piece of property that a white person would want to purchase and live there? And that's why so many black uh, homes and black communities are devalued because there's this perception by realtors, national realtors, which are almost exclusively white, that is their formula and how they put all these things together. And by the way, they were the ones responsible for even pushing the idea of redlining in the 1930s. And so that's one that's one step. But the other step is making sure that this information, that this history does not continue to be left out of our national narrative. Because as long as you can erase that history, people not only don't know or forget, but future generations don't have the context of what happened. And so as a result, if you're looking at the statistics and you see how many black people have, you know, this amount of money in the bank and have this and that, and, and then you look at white people and what they have, then in your mind, well, wow, you know, black people haven't been doing as well as white people. Well, that's not the case. You're forgetting what actually happened. You're forgetting that black people were forced to live when, when they were in cities, they were forced to live in the inner cities. They were forced to live in crumbling areas. They were forced to rent apartments that cost twice to them what it would cost to a white person. And so, so much wealth was taken from them constantly and repeatedly. And of course, they were barred when they were doctors from practicing in hospitals. It wasn't until the 19 mid to late 1960s, that black doctors were even allowed to be on staff at the majority hospitals. And then it was a slow process. At for a moment, because you said a lot and I want to, I want us to wrap, but I want to 
hit, I think, important points that you're talking about because it's it's very good. You're getting a history lesson here, folks. And again, I'll go back to <laughs> again. This is why history matters. And you're talking about redlining. You, you're talking about one of the most um, persistent forms of discrimination in this country is housing. I mean, and, and ironically, if we go back to Donald Trump for a moment, one of the first lawsuits that the Trump organization sustained was by HUD in the 70s for violating fair housing laws. And right? by the way, that was in Norfolk. Yes, absolutely right. So Virginia has a history unto itself, of course, as a former slave state at one of the original 13 colonies, home of Jefferson, Washington, at all, all slave owners, um, even though presidents and founding fathers, if you will. And so I think you're talking about the persistence and the wealth gap. When you look at the numbers, and I would encourage folks to go to the Boston Globe, uh, Kimberly Storr, who's a good friend of mine, is one of the um, editors there. And they have a whole series, just like New York Times did on 1619 Project, the Boston Globe has a whole series on the wealth gap and how it came about. And it would literally take Black people 200 plus years to get equal to the wealth white people have today. And I'm not talking about rich white people. I'm talking about your everyday working white family that has $10,000 in savings versus a black family who may have 1,000 or 500 or less in savings of similar situation. So you're right about this. And I would ask you just to have the last word on, as we're dealing with everything that we've talked about uh, over these last couple of hours on both the podcasts, uh, Dr. Newby Alexander, um, again, systemic racism is a persistent thing. Is it something we can get rid of? Is Or is it just something we're going to live with when you look at the wealth gap, the pay gap? How do we fix it? Maybe we can't. Maybe that's the answer. But restorative justice has to kind of address that question, I would think. I think that the way that we built institutionalized inequality, we have to destroy it and build a whole new system mm. that would allow for true equality. But you cannot use the same system that is currently in place if you want to actually change and, and move in a direction that provides equality. So you first have to get to equity and we're not there yet. And you have a lot of people running from that because there's, again, it goes back to this fear that if we move in this direction of equality, that means something that I believe I deserve is going to be taken away from me and given to people who are undeserving. And so all of this means that we have to begin to teach and to publicize our real complicated and shared history. Mm -hmm. Without doing that, we're not going to move forward. Yeah, that's that's it in a word. You know, the whole notion of this redefining freedom podcast, the reason I created this platform is exactly what you said. We could call it redefining it, reconstructing it. Uh, whatever word you want to use, but you're right. You cannot have institutions built on racism, on the taking of something somebody else had or that belonged to them or making other people's work for you with no pay and no wages and no wealth creation while you got rich on your tobacco, your sugar, your cotton, your indigo whatever it was, and then say to those people, well, why can't you start the same as me? And that I see that persistently coming out, not of the mouths of bigots and people in their 60s, 70s, or 80s, but 20-year-olds. And that bothers me. And I think, you know, my last word on this, Doc, and thank you again for being with us is, you know, um, if you think about where we find ourselves right now and where we're headed, I think the big test for this country in 2024 is going to be how we come out of this, because I think this election is going to say a lot about who America is and who America wants to be, right? Like, we're either going to go backwards, which a lot of people seem to want uh, through all the actions we've talked about, or we're going to go forward and do what you said, which is say we got to tear down 
this thing that we built because it's built on a faulty foundation. It's built on a bad foundation. I'm not sure we're willing to do that. Um, so that's my thought. You have a last thought on that? I think we're afraid to do that, but it will not destroy our nation. It will actually strengthen our nation so that we're not really living as a nation of hypocrites. You cannot build a nation that says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights among which life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness while simultaneously holding people in bondage and forever keeping them from those basic foundational principles. And it does not matter if we have a system of slavery or if we have a penal system that puts people in a form of slavery. It's still the same. If there's still the same outcome, and that is that people cannot achieve happiness. They, can, they cannot achieve having rights and freedoms. And so I think that we have, we're on a precipice right now. You know, it takes 20 years to enter a new century. So we're now in two, 2024. We're now in the 21st century. What are we going to do with our new century? Which direction are we going to go? And so we're Janice face. There are people looking back and there are people looking forward. But I believe there are more people looking forward and they're looking for answers to where we can go. And I, I see a lot of promise, but we have to be bold and brave in order to accomplish it. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Thus, the notion of redefining freedom, because freedom started for rich white land owning males in 1776 and merchants and or, you know, most people, again, don't know their history. You know this and I know this. A certain class of white men couldn't vote once upon a time. If oh, they were absolutely. Like a lot of white folks don't know that. And again, you and I could go on and on forever, but I think that's exactly it. You, you free yourself by learning about your history so that you learn the lessons and you go forward wiser, stronger, e pluribus unum out of many. One, thank you, Doc, for being with us. I'm going to have you back a million times. I love talking to you. And thank you so much for blessing us on our first podcast of Black History Month. Thank you. Thank you so very much.